0: Chapter Six. The Engadina Nus Torte at the Spitzenhof was better known as the Wiener Congress Torte. The filling was walnuty and caramelized to perfection. The pastry casing provided exactly the correct textures in the mouth. It meant that the overall tones of the torte were yielding, Yet resistant, which is to say that each sweet mouthful was rich and pleasantly crunchy. Using the side of his fork to produce a second bite, Otto skewered each catch and popped it into his mouth. With overstated deliberation, he chewed the package to a pulp. He was chewing in sympathy to the grunts of a dog a few tables along. As he chewed, he slurped his coffee, spilling some on the tablecloth. The coffee scored his throat, but Otto wasn't about to let his discomfort show. The object of this behavior was that, even as he devoured a perfectly balanced congress torte, he could show the priest that he wasn't about to be toyed with. The rule against looking away occurred spontaneously. It began as soon as Otto had grabbed the chair opposite and thrown himself into it. His emotions were flared, By the prospect of being reunited with Marie. That anything should get in the way of this made him indignant. The business of accepting the priest's invitation to join him needed to be put on a war footing. Otto's antics were so pronounced that he was attracting astonished gazes from neighboring tables. But when the rules of one-upmanship are in play, they are all that matter. They permitted Otto to eat and drink angrily while he fronted it out with the ubiquitous minister and his blasted book. His chewing felt sustainably aggressive. A voice in his head told him he could chew all day long if he liked. It was the voice of righteousness. It needed to grandstand the sense that each time he clamped his teeth together, Otto was eating the priest. When the priest had been sufficiently pulpified and all of the sweet, gloopy innards had been rinsed down with piping hot coffee, there would be an end to the long and pathetically drawn-out saga of how they had come to be sitting opposite one another in the first place. That the priest was able to decipher Otto's antagonistic chewing and that he understood the rules of combat perfectly became apparent when he produced a wane smile. Otto shoved a third helping into his mouth and chomped. According to the rules, the victor was the one who could remain silent for longest while staring into the eyes of his opponent. The dog nearby produced another woof. Eating violently seemed the right thing to do. It might be said, however, that Otto's strategy was fatally flawed. Accepting an invitation to have coffee with the priest, even after such a curmudgeonly fashion, was contrary to the notion that he didn't want to have anything to do with the man. If anything, Otto should have been giving way to his spleen. But, because of the way he was eating, he denied himself the option of being openly indignant without breaching his own rules. At the same time, he was fast running out of Congress, Torte, All his opponent had to do was wait. Then the priest made a play of his own. He shut the paperback he'd been reading so Otto could see the cover. A sensationalist fiery font spelled out the words Otto in Flames. The title burned across a colorful image of a Cossack on a horse. The horse was rearing in front of a cave while two ravens chased an eagle overhead. Otto had never heard of the author. His brain bulged as he tried to work out what all of this meant. When the priest reached into his cassock and withdrew a bulky manila envelope, he stopped chewing altogether. It was the winning salvo. Once the priest had placed the interesting envelope on the table, the game was over. Otto couldn't help exclaiming, through a mouthful of crumbs, What do you expect me to do? Look inside? The priest spoke evenly. It's up to you, he said. My task was to deliver it. What if I don't want it? I suspect once you have looked, you will find what's inside difficult to reject. Otto wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. He may have lost the first round, but he was ready for the second.
1: Double or quits,
0: a voice in his head was saying. It was the voice of a fool. Although it should have been uppermost in Otto's mind, the unsettling cover of the paperback with the strange title no longer mattered. What he imagined now was picking up the distended envelope, glancing at the contents, and tossing it back in the priest's face. He believed he had the upper hand. He'd already guessed that the envelope contained a significant sum of money earmarked for him though he couldn't think why anybody should want to give him what he needed most, which was a means of surviving the winter in Vienna without having to beg. In order to reject the money, he was going to have to steal himself. He expressed this building of resolve by tightening his lips so that they pulled downwards. He lifted the flap of the envelope and angled his head to peer inside. He looked for slightly too long. He wasn't prepared for the impact of glancing at tens of thousands of neatly bundled euros. He swallowed inelegantly and let go of the envelope. In a concession to the idea that a parley might be in order, he said, You mentioned you were given a task. By whom? "Is compensation for your time, the priest said. But who should wish to compensate me? A prospector for value, we might say. Does he go by the name of Anton Matins? We all go by many names. Well, Father... Prometano. Certainly. Delighted. Indeed. Please tell your ubiquitous prospector for value that I have no intention of sparing him any of my time. In my experience, Monsieur robot the priest replied, if what one intends to happen goes on to happen, it is only ever a matter of luck. Now it was Otto's turn to smile. Here was another game they might play. He picked up a spoon from the table and used it to slide the manila envelope back towards the priest without touching it. As a gesture of defiance, this precise shove didn't bear much scrutiny. Otto wanted the money badly. He needed it, but he didn't want to be seen accepting it from what had become a mortal enemy. When the priest's left eyelid began to twitch, Otto sat back, folding his arms, pleased to gloat at the man's apparent discomfort. It was a pleasure to be obstinate. Yet he couldn't resist wondering how he might achieve a reversal. The priest didn't speak. Otto heard a voice, though. It was unlike any of the other voices in his head. It was beautiful and sing-along, just like the voice of a muse. It advised softly, in his left ear, that he would fail no matter what he did. What was about to happen to him, the voice purred. ...would always have happened to the end of time. This fatalistic outcome, so casually predicted by the voice, troubled Otto. He had experience of being able to foretell the future. But this situation with the priest had not been part of any of his own prophecies. His perturbation increased when he heard another sound. Although this wasn't actually a sound, it was an absence of volume... The dissonance produced by the Spitzenhof that Wednesday afternoon had become implausibly quiet. Otto looked about at the silence in the café. Even the dog wasn't barking anymore. The priest was saying something, but whatever it was couldn't be heard. He was still sitting opposite. From the movement of his lips, what the priest was saying might have been something along the lines of...
1: I see, I see. You enjoy a spot of gamesmanship, Monsieur Roubault.
0: Otto nodded. He was still thinking about the money. Even as the priest's face became a pink splurge, he felt obliged to pretend that he was indifferent to the distortions he was perceiving. The man was saying something else now. Otto had to lean forward. He had to squint. These gestures were meant to indicate that he'd become momentarily confused and that the situation required clarification. As if he understood perfectly, the priest smiled and waved. Otto followed the circular movements of the man's hand. It was the hand with the luminous ring on it. The hand was indicating an area around the buttons of his cassock. When he stared at it, Otto was able to distinguish two shiny buttons. But it wasn't his cassock the priest was pointing at. It was the blackness. The surroundings were as dark as they were silent. Otto was still in a seated position, but he couldn't tell where he was sitting. There was nothing to see. The café was gone. There was nothing to hear. He called for help, but he couldn't even hear his own voice. Not being able to hear his voice was the most frightening part. It was as if nothing existed anymore, except Otto's experience of it. But it was more complicated than that. It turned out that being aware of nothing was not a perfect oblivion. It was the spur out of which anything could happen. He felt instinctively that he mustn't imagine himself being in danger. Even so, Otto was certain there was something reptilian, very close by, ready to ingest parts of him. He could smell the breath of his imagined attacker. It was sweet and vile, like a rotting pumpkin. An involuntary contraction in his throat made his breathing sound like a trumpet being played by a novice. Before he could leap to his feet, his chair lifted off. It raised itself up into the air. He managed to grip the sides and tried to shout, ''What's going on?'' But there was only silence. After a while, he could hear his breathing, but not his voice yet. Had he not been so terrified, the fact that there was something as tangible as a chair under him might have provided the relief he needed. He felt that his chair was about to soar even higher, with him in it. He didn't want to, but he imagined being hoisted even further into the darkness for the rest of time. A familiar voice said,
1: Be careful careful what you wish for.
0: It was the voice of a trusty automaton. Otto could no longer think for himself, and the automaton didn't have to think. It knew exactly what to say and when to say it. Otto thought of nothing. The higher functions of his brain rumbled to a stop like a motor being cut. Everything was dark and silent again. He imagined nothing happening and nothing did. Nothing happened for a very long time had he not been a living presence in the black expanse, nothing might have happened forever. Only when his trusty automaton was satisfied that the danger of imagining the worst had passed, did Otto dare to think for himself again. Yet he could think only of his love for Marie. There seemed to be nothing else to think about. It felt as if he only had to reach out, and she would be floating in the blackness with him. The feeling became a pinpoint of light. Since being plunged so forcibly into his black sea, this was the first visible phenomenon Otto could detect. It started with a diamond glint off to his right. When he turned to stare at it, the photograph rushed at him. It wasn't a photograph yet, it was still a display of brilliance, Along with a shock of fresh mountain air, it engulfed him as he sucked his first breath in and heard his wife giggling in 1999. He felt himself balancing on the first rung of a green rail. The view beyond was bright and limitless. Thousands of meters below, the city's copper rooftops quivered in the sunlight. The gold of it merged with the silver dazzle of the river, coursing down from the mountains, right through the center of town. On such a blue and radiant day, nothing about what was happening could be denied. Otto was laughing because Marie was laughing. There was no other reason to laugh, but it was the best reason of all. She'd raised her Instamatic so that the camera covered her face. She was bent forwards, telling Otto not to be such an idiot. The more she wanted him to be still to take his picture, the more he wanted to show her he could fly from the rail like a bird. As he perched playfully on one foot over the scenery below, he heard a raven calling overhead. He looked up. He almost fell then. Marie shrieked and told him to stop being so crazy. People were looking. Otto laughed, but his laughter was frayed with nerves. First, he extended his hands out, almost losing his balance again, then his left leg. He was poised on the ball of his right foot, almost in a star shape now. All he had to do was leap into the clouds and he would be gone forever. He bared his teeth for the camera. Hurry up. He said...
1: My leg is chilly.
0: As soon as Marie's camera went ker-click, Otto's future fell into place. It felt like his field of vision was expanding rapidly, revealing more than he should ever have known. Somehow he understood that everything was about to change for the worse. He knew the invention Marie was using to create a photographic representation of him would soon be archaic. However implausible it seemed, he knew that the photograph Marie had just taken would be shunned by his grown-up children who weren't even born yet. Although he won't have known everything, Otto suddenly knew so much more. He knew that Marie's Instamatic would be replaced by an electric handheld device capable not only of taking and storing thousands of detailed color images that could be viewed instantly, but of being used as an access point to anything that might broadly be thought of as information. Somehow. Otto even knew that within his own lifetime, the networks of information globally available on these handheld devices would be dominated by ever more powerful interests intent on manipulating the ways in which people thought and behaved. Unraveling within these bizarre premonitions was a dire and precise sense of what was going to happen to him personally. He would begin to suffer from a new kind of illness. He would end up calling it the future. Although his familiarity with the details of this future remained sketchy, the condition Otto had would be enough to destabilize him mentally. He saw with utter clarity how his relationship with his wife would collapse after the birth of their second child. He knew he would be forced to leave Vienna in a state of turmoil and that he wouldn't be back for a very long time from 2002 he would live in England he would become a solicitor there and eventually work in the criminal courts his children would grow up to hate each other he would hardly know them but he would never lose touch with Marie in 2016 he would be left for dead on a beach the victim of a murderous attack at long last he would return to Vienna by then though Marie would be plunged into a crisis of her own Even there on the mountain, he wanted to be able to rescue her. As if it was written, Otto knew all of this in an instant. He could even foresee his reunion with Marie 20 years later. It would happen in the Spitzenhof Café on the 18th of February, 2019. This dark future, which Otto could see so clearly, would bear down on him and crush him. It was like a prison sentence. Once that madness had set in, the snapshot Marie had taken with such a different future in mind would be all that remained of their past. Sensing something was wrong, she lowered her camera. Her frown was gone as soon as it appeared. Her passing concern was exactly as Otto remembered it. In every detail, he and Marie had become his memory of what happened that day. The only difference was that from now on, Otto could only pretend to be himself. He knew too much to be who he was. He would try to shrug it off, but he couldn't be unmade. He jumped down from the railing and landed squarely on both feet, hands on hips, like superheroes used to land in the comics he'd read as a boy. He did everything he could to appear happy. In a few strides, he was able to position himself alongside his beloved. They were on a weekend break in Salzburg. They'd walked to the top of the mountain, talking to themselves all the way. They'd seen themselves as unquenchable beings, rising to the top of everything. The last few hours had been taxing. The week before, Marie had found out she was pregnant. On the way up, they decided their first child would be called Elizabeth. Just thinking of this name had given them the motivation they needed to reach the summit. Yet, for Otto, it was much more than a name now. Uncannily, he knew roughly what his daughter would look like in twenty years' time. He could more or less describe their son as well, who hadn't even been thought of yet. Although Otto had begun to experience the dislocation of his future, it formed in his mind as a senseless cluster of memories, which even included a confrontation with a rabid dog. For another few years, until 2002, he would permit himself to believe that he might be able to deny what he could remember. But from the moment this whole ordeal began, at the most inexpressible levels, Otto was unable to cope. As they strolled back towards the lift station, he chose to demonstrate his undying love with an ancient gesture of unity. He slipped his arm around Marie's waist. She shrugged him away. She joked that it was the last time she would let him jump off a cliff. It was exactly as Otto remembered it. He didn't want this moment to end, but he knew it already had. As he walked alongside the woman he would have two children with, he was able to recall his future without her. In England, he would learn to speak a new language. He would learn to forget his past in the absorptions of being a trials lawyer. Towards the end of his career, somebody would try to kill him. The attack would leave him in a coma. Out of her concern, Marie would travel to England, even though by that time she would be with another man what held Otto together throughout his prison sentence was the knowledge that he would be reunited with his wife in 2019 to his relief his power to predict the future would finally end at midnight on the day they were to meet after that whatever awaited Otto in Vienna would remain a mystery the fact that he had no clue how it would end was what made it sufferable. Like the onset of madness, all of this came flooding into his increasingly disordered mind the day Marie took her black-and-white snap. Still hoping to avoid what had only just been revealed, Otto stopped walking and faced his wife. He wanted to tell her that things didn't have to be the way they were but there were no words he could think of to express the fact that, although he looked the same, his memory was twenty years older. What's the matter? Marie had asked. You look strange. There was no way of breaking the silence. Offering to explain that he'd become a slave to the future would only have made things more horrendous in the present. Even as he stared into the green of Marie's gaze, As he smelled the sweet mustiness of her hair and her bright smile overpowered him Otto was forced to remain silent Stop it she said You're hurting my arm He let go He wasn't himself anymore He would never be himself anymore He looked at the sky for help but only saw a raven overhead It flew behind some rocks further down the slope Marie was calling his name She was asking what was wrong. He laughed. It was the first false laugh of their relationship. It would be the first of many. He told her how happy he was, but he couldn't look at her. By 2002, she will have given birth to their second child, a boy called Jacob. Otto knew this too. Although he would try to keep up pretenses, he could sense the arc of his life like a dog senses catastrophe. the Black Sea Tuesday had been the longest day in Anton's life unless he did something drastic Wednesday was likely to go on forever with all of eternity to mull things over you would think he might have anticipated something like this he couldn't have helped remarking that by being in the unseen not only could he be in more than one place at a time he could be in more than one time at a time. Shortly after he died, although he might have gone anywhere he liked, the default place for Anton to go was his favorite café. Still too confused, he couldn't think of anywhere more congenial to continue writing his book and drinking coffee. I should point out that drinking coffee in the Unseen was not like drinking it in a real café. Among the living, coffee has a protracted history. It required the discovery by holy men that by roasting a berry loved by goats and birds and drinking the hot brew, as if by magic they could attend to their devotions tirelessly. Over time, a more general desire for the aroma and arousal of the beverage needed to be fostered so that it could be turned into a global commodity. Alongside the development of a system of manufacturing and trade designed to stimulate demand, it would have been necessary then to supply that demand for as long as humanly possible. With so many historical emanations supporting it, the consumption of coffee in unseemly quantities may have come to be regarded as the most natural thing in the world. But this achievement had been centuries in the making. In the unseen, coffee was instant, It had always been there. It didn't have to be ordered. You only had to think of it. All of time had already happened. If Anton liked, he could have been in all of it at once. But when confronted by this fact, he found himself unable to tolerate such an extreme form of dissolution. At any given moment, he preferred to be in different sections of everything. As long as what he was imagining was familiar to him, it didn't matter how far apart in time those sections might be. Thus, he finished his coffee and closed his laptop. He left the laptop where it was. Where he was going, he wouldn't be needing electronics anymore. Insofar as he wanted the Unseen to resemble what he already knew, Anton stood up and immersed himself back onto the deck of the calliope in the late 19th century. It was August 1882 when the steamship finally lowered her anchors. A dozen bearded and bare-chested oarsmen passed heavy lines to the crew on board. As a gentleman traveller, it was Anton's desire, at that moment, to conduct a summer tour of the Caucasus. Whistling the smoke out of a cheroot, he leaned over the railing on the foredeck to stare at the twinkling sea lapping against the bow. Even in the harbor breeze it was uncomfortably hot. He had his shirt sleeves rolled up. He draped his cape over his arm. As he watched the men heaving their ropes about, he thought of an interesting new sentence for chapter seven of his novel. He was anxious to write it down before it escaped him. His notebook and pencils were in his left trouser pocket. The sentence he had in mind may have sounded awkward, but Anton knew not to let a petty detail like that get in his way. This is what he wrote.
1: When he saw his quarry trot onto the ridge to top off his rage, all he had to do was sing My Favorite Things, ironically.
0: As he jotted this down, Anton thought up a new amusement. Punning on the body of water that had conveyed him from Odessa to Batumi, it occurred to him that the amusement he had in mind might be called the Black Sea. Within it, and according to the rules, he imagined what I still regard to be the most essential moment of my life. He saw Marie using her Instamatic to take the only surviving photograph of me. I really don't recall Anton on the observation platform in the mountains where we were at the time the photograph was taken, but I suppose he could have been in Austria then. He only had to magic himself into the situation as one of the other tourists, perhaps, pretending not to see the happy couple that we were planning the rest of our lives. He will have known, of course, how desperate I was to speak honestly with Marie about the prophecies I was having. Knowing how livid I would be at his meddling, he described a second scenario percolating within the Black Sea game. In this one, I was still on a mountain, but it was no longer in the Alps with my wife. Now I was squeezed onto a rocky escarpment high in the Caucasus. While it had nothing to do with events in Vienna, what Anton was busy scribbling into his notebook did have consequences in the unseen. The idea was that I should wait for him to ride on to a ridge. Before he could gallop up to the cave, I would have the pleasure of trying to shoot him off his horse. As far as he understood his predicament, he still had to find a way of getting into his cave without being aware of it. He calculated that being shot at by me would make him hurry in without having to think. It was so ridiculous it was comical. Anton didn't have to play these kinds of tricks on himself anymore. He was already dead. He could do anything he liked. It was his memories that insisted on what he did. Once he'd finished writing his note, he whiled away the next quarter of an hour, observing the preparations to draw the steamer to the dock. Clustered along the quay were a number of wooden constructions and outbuildings, Between them was a thoroughfare leading to a church spire in the distance. Some of the buildings had canvas awnings draped over the dusty road to shade walkers from the heavy heat. The church bell had just chimed. Twice. As the vessel drew alongside the wooden pier, the bustle ashore grew more active. Smoking in leisurely puffs, surveying the busy scene below, Anton's eye was caught by a selection of patterned rugs. They were draped over the balcony of a ramshackle edifice dominating the harbour front. Fractal emanations within the rugs poured out at him. It was a geometrical wonder of squares within squares. The pattern was stitched in auburns and yellows, pointing infinitely to the most minute crenellations, there was a crush of excitement when the opened docked. As the gangway was hoisted to the pier, street vendors jostled to sell their wares to passengers waiting to disembark. A group of children played among a stack of wooden crates and empty cloth sacks. One of them turned, swishing her yellow dress. She wore a matching scarf. When she waved at Anton, Her smile became as real as the patterns of squares on the rugs still merging with his thoughts. He waved back and realized that the girl's face was the only face he could see. Standing near her was a group of men in turbans. They were shouting orders at each other. Anton could hear them perfectly. He could even understand them. But he couldn't distinguish one man from the other. Their faces were blurred. By the steps of the ramshackle warehouse, the dark shape of a dog, held back by a chain, was barking furiously. Each bark began deep in the dog's belly and extended itself in the air, like a large balloon being popped. With or without his spectacles, Anton was barely able to process anything more than the outlines of all the living things he saw. He knew who the child in the yellow dress was. She was Urania, in the guise of a girl. He waved at her again. Out of her carefree laughter, he realized that what he needed to be able to see others more clearly in the unseen was to communicate directly with them. His attention was drawn to a pair of camels. They were tethered to a post on the thoroughfare. As he watched, the camels looked at him. At the same time, they became wonderfully detailed. Both were chewing. One was stood to its full height. It was burdened by a stack of packages bound together by a lattice of ropes. The other one was still kneeling in the earth, clearly annoyed by the many hands busy loading the rigging around the hump on its back. There was a gentleman nearby. He stood under the long green flaps of a date palm. Although he was peculiarly dressed, and Anton couldn't see beyond the smudge of the man's face, he recognized the thick black sideboards connecting with the lavish mustachios for what they were, the emblems of an Englishman in the days of empire. The Englishman held himself as erect as a bowler at the wicket, with one hand propped against his waist. There was no word that Anton knew of for what the Englishman had elected to put on his head, Because of the plaid pattern of the material it was made of, it looked like a Scottish bonnet. Knotted around it was a black-and-white checkered keffiyeh. The rest of his clothing seemed native, but in a dandified style. He had a pink burlap tunic on, lined with copper studs. Long black tassels hung from the sleeves. The gentleman wasn't wearing trousers, not by any British definition of the word. Strapped with a broad mauve sash, the caravan cut of his legwear was wide and flowing to begin with, but tapered to a narrow fit around his ankles. On his feet he wore a pair of red leather slippers, each turned up to a point, with a black bobble on each end. He had a leather satchel slung over his back, no doubt containing letters of introduction. This fellow had joined Anton's ship at Odessa, but had retired to his cabin, where he'd taken all of his meals. It didn't seem possible that he should already have managed to slip ashore, even before the Calliopean was properly moored, but there he was, in all his finery, making preparations for his onward journey. As he glanced up at Anton, who hadn't been able to look at anything else for some time, a face with a ready grin emerged. Anton could be in one place one moment and in a different place the next. All he had to do was imagine doing away with the dull intervals interposed by time. As sure as he was standing on the deck of the Kaliopan, he was waiting in the heat for a carriage to take him to Batomi. A couple of porters had stacked his luggage behind him. He paid them lavishly with a rouble from his pocketbook wallet. Money came easily as well. Because he could imagine having plenty of money, Anton would never be short of a promissory note or two when he needed one. He didn't know how he'd been drawn into conversation with the fantastically attired Englishman. It simply happened that the fellow introduced himself as the Reverend Dr. Henry Lansdell at Anton's service. Anton bowed formally. He paid his compliments and mentioned having an interest in forgotten civilizations. I have rather more pressing interests, the reverend doctor revealed. He tapped his leather satchel. He did this as if Anton should have known what he meant. In order to avoid confusion, Anton began talking about himself. He said he was on a private expedition, retracing the footsteps of the ancient philosopher Heraclitus, who had been banished from Ephesus long ago. His research had led him to suspect that this obscure but exceptional thinker had ended his days in a remote part of the Caucasus. He hoped to muster a party to proceed with pack animals northwest into the high mountains. He wondered if the reverend doctor had any advice as to where general supplies might be procured. Lansdell had begun to frown.
1: You appear foreign, he said. I have reasonably good English, Anton replied. Perhaps you've been to Egypt? Mm, I can't say I have. I met a fellow with more than a passing resemblance to you who spoke English as well. And, like you, he was keen on the Ancients. Only he'd been to Egypt.
0: It must be very stimulating there, Anton offered.
1: But I'm afraid... Egypt is completely unknown to me. You might consider Alexandria then. It's popular with enthusiasts and not too far from the Holy Land. If my information is correct, from this month a battalion of Scots guards will be on hand there. They'll see to it that you come to no harm. I presume your credentials are in order. They are,
0: Anton said,
1: and it's awfully kind of you, but
0: I am determined to remain in Georgia.
1: Suit yourself, Lansdell said. I would urge, however, that you take a good book with you. It so happens I have one here.
0: Anton smiled. It wasn't necessary to mention that he wrote the damn things. He raised his hand to decline any book his fellow traveller might care to present him
1: with. No, I insist, the Reverend Doctor chorused. After all, this isn't just any good book. It's THE good book.
0: Anton groaned inwardly. He was not averse to religion in principle. It was just that people who gave away Bibles always told you how to read them. Lansdell had already reached into his bulging satchel. He may have thought he was pulling out a Bible, but a slippage in the unseen had him pulling out a slimmer volume. A number of pages had been removed from the end of this book. The Reverend Doctor didn't even blink at the error he'd made. He apologized that his copy wasn't as complete as it might have been. He explained that the last few chapters had been unavoidably put to a separate use during the ocean voyage. The unfortunate abridgment should not, he lied, prevent Anton from enjoying the premise, which was most edifying. He held it out for Anton to take. It seemed time might stop. It almost did. As soon as Lansdell presented him with a copy of Otto in Flames, there was no more succession that Anton could perceive. The colors of the location he was in merged and mixed into a slow-moving gloop. The title of the book was emblazoned in red letters over the top of the cover just above Anton's own name. If there was any movement left, it was localized to this single memory of taking possession of his own book from the Reverend Dr. Henry Lansdell one hot August afternoon in the port of Batumi in 1882. Now that time had almost stopped, Anton noticed that he had a new belief. It was that there might be such a thing as a good book after all. While he was still alive, he'd believed that every book was about the reader reading it. Tastes were bound to change. If the quality of a book was bound up with the time it was read in, It made sense to believe that the time a reader existed in was essential to the way any book was read. But now that Anton's exposure to the unseen had become all but total, it worked to dispel that logic, so rooted in temporal assumptions about reality. A good book once, Anton thought now, is a good book forever. Time had almost caught up, but it wasn't relentless yet. In order to be able to think things through, Anton kept time moving at a slower pace. The reverend doctor's voice remained slurred. He was little more than the shape of a tall man, shimmering close to Anton's deliberations about the goodness of books.
1: It's all in there,
0: the Englishman was trying to say.
1: From now on, as long as you have your book with you, you'll know exactly what to do.
0: As he gradually reached into his tunic for his pocket watch, Lansdell broke into another boyish grin. Anton liked the look of the emerging timepiece. He found himself wondering how clocks came to dominate time. Time had never ticked. It was obvious that the passage of events didn't dance to a steady beat. It moved according to a person's moods. If anything happened, it was a mood it happened in, Not a period of time. At that moment, while he had all the time in the world, the mood Anton was in was informed by the pungent smell of the camels. He began to feel dizzy. It was the hot air he'd been trying to take in shallow breaths. It was the sweat dripping off the tip of his nose onto his beard. Meanwhile, though, because time and space had barely advanced, Lansdell was still fumbling around in his tunic. Regardless of Anton's perpetual loading of events, now that he was no longer alive, it seemed he could have the most vivid experiences of anything or anyone imaginable, and do it at different speeds. He frightened himself with the idea that he'd died and gone to hell. He didn't dare ponder this, in case it suddenly happened. Lansdell was holding on to a golden chain attached to his tunic. Anton made the action speed up. It was as easy as tapping his fingers more quickly on a table. All at once, the reverend doctor slipped out his pocket watch. On recovering his capacity to speak clearly and at volume, he claimed that the answer lay in Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26.
1: I'm sorry, which answer? By gad, you are Christian, aren't you?
0: The reverend doctor raised himself to his full height and blared out the passage he had in mind. All activity on the quay ceased. Even the camels stopped chewing to listen to the myth of creation.
1: Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth."
0: Taking care to maintain some dignity, the Reverend Doctor wiped a trickle of sweat from his brow with the spotted kerchief he would produced from his costume. He flipped open the lid of his pocket watch. The mechanism was hidden in the most perfectly polished golden case. The pale face had Roman numerals, As he regarded the display, Lansdell's features began to harden. This hardening involved jutting his chin even further than it normally jutted and stretching the dimple there. It gave Anton the impression that something dramatic was about to happen.
1: One after two,
0: Lansdell said.
1: How time does persist?
0: It was a mystery to Anton that this comment should have put him in mind of the immediate past. As they parted ways, he asked Lansdell if he knew of a good horse that might be purchased for his expedition to the high mountains.
1: "'All things come from where they've been,'
0: Lansdell said. "'Yes, but
1: where do they go after that?'
0: Anton asked, waving most of his book in the air.
1: "'They go to ground, my friend. Genesis, chapter 3, verse 19.' In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it it wast thou taken. taken. You You won't need a horse to get you there.
0: But Anton already had one. He was already in the saddle, riding up the mountain trail. It was as if he'd always been in the saddle. Although it was shockingly cold, he was wrapped in pelts and grateful for the papaka he'd purchased in Batomi. The damaged copy of Otto and Flames was tucked under his belt. By a cruel twist, it only had the first seven chapters in it. He imagined having always owned Lansdell's golden timepiece. The story he told himself was that he'd bought it at an auction when he was still among the living. As he rode up the trail, he pulled it out, In the lower left-hand corner, the shortest measurement offered by the mechanism had their own display within a display. For the rest of eternity, it would be necessary for Anton to check, over and over, that the second hand was nudging its way steadily into the moment universally known as one minute after two. His horse trotted happily onto the ridge. He no longer felt the need to scratch the itch under his hat. The cave was only twenty paces off. In a few seconds, the singing would be audible, signaling the inception of his pointless attempt to fool himself into not realizing he was in the unseen. I would remind you, Anton no longer needed to play such tricks on himself. He no longer had the capacity to be self-conscious. Nevertheless, he stuck obsessively to his comedy, because that's all he had to stick to. In a moment, the strains of a familiar voice would roar the words of a well-known song. The minute he heard it, Anton would swivel in his saddle, too late before the bullet whizzed over him, and the first of two shots rang over the canyon.